Welcome to the Great Base Tennis Podcast. I'm your co-host, Andy Fitzell, alongside Steve Smith. And thanks for tuning in. Today's episode 12. It's a new day, new opportunity to excel. And today we're interviewing our good friend Richard Hernandez from Canada. Part two. Part two of what's going on in Canada. Yes. Um, Tennis-wise, we're always asked, what's going on in Canada? Did they put something in the water? And when we... uh, had the intro for Miron Man, the young guy who's worked with Richards, worked with us, quoted John McEnroe. Mm-hmm. I can accept Canada having better hockey players than us. I cannot accept Canada having better tennis players than us. But Richard, uh, I've known Richard a long time. Um, why don't we get him on the phone and we'll tell our uh, listeners more about him as we go. All right. You've got that phone right there. Let's do this. <laughs> Into that so this is as high tech as I get is using a cell phone. Oh, you're doing awesome. My goal at one point was to be the last person on planet Earth that had a cell phone. I went a, a long time. I think we could get sponsored by Apple. That was pretty good. Apple, who took the bite out of Apple? Waiting for the first ring. There it is. Old man Richard. Remember, Miran's the young guy, Richard's the old guy. Richard? Hello. Hello. Richie Baby, Steve Smith, Andy Fitzell, what's up? Good afternoon, gentlemen. Good afternoon. How are we? Good afternoon. Great, great. As you know, we're going to go with part two. We talked to uh, your understudy, Miran Mann, the young guy. We're calling you the old guy, old man Richard. (laughs) Pre-internet. Pre-internet. We know Canada. (laughs) (laughs) We know Canada, a beautiful place, the great white north. Um, I grew up maybe 10 miles from Canada. I was fortunate to live in Canada. Mm-hmm. You made that arrangement. My kids were playing ice hockey. I love living in Toronto. Um, Great city. With uh, Richard, tell the people. It's, yeah, hard, it's hard, hard to keep up with your background. Born in Trinidad, England, Italy, U.S., and now you're in Canada. Tell us about your right. early days. So I was right. So my, you know, my, both my parents from Trinidad, I was born there. My father was in the uh, airline business, and we moved to England in the early 60s, mid-60s. I was about two years old. Um, grew up in England, um, and while my father worked for the airlines, I was able to travel to different cities in Europe where he worked um, for extended stays, three, four years at times. At times, and um, And then with that, he decided it would best for me to go to boarding school, which I did. And that's where I picked up um, my interest in tennis. Probably a little bit before I went to boarding school, but primarily at boarding school. Boarding school um, in England, right? Uh, yeah, boarding school. Portsmouth, England. Southie, actually. St. John's College. And so from there, you know, played junior tennis and wanted to continue playing tennis. So I looked into that as a possibility in the States. And I ended up in a D2 school, Division II school at the time. It was Hampton Institute. And um, it had a background of players. Roger Geddes, a Brazilian player, played Wimbledon. Um, Bruce Foxworth, 
played the U.S. Open. I think he got to round the 16 at one one year. Um, tragically passed away at an early age. Um, and then a friend of mine who brought me to Texas, Gabriel Matos, was at Hampton as well. So that's how I ended up going to um, Longview slash Gladewater to um, help a little bit. And with that, I... Uh, at that time, I, was, I think we were at Gladewater, and uh, we were hosting a junior event, and Steve came over with this young player, Clayton Stanley. And I was just amazed at the level of skill this guy possessed at, you know, very early. I think he was like 10 or 11 at the time. And I sat and I spoke with Steve, and he told me his position with Tyler Junior College. And I believe the tournament was on a Saturday, Sunday, and Monday I went over for a, I went to Tyler Junior College for a visit and to review what he did. I went a couple of times and then enrolled the next semester, the following semester. Now, to digress, uh, Clayton Stanley, uh, I think born October 23rd, uh, 1974. Yeah, so he was the, uh, the first guinea pig at Tyler Junior College's tennis tech program. Years later, if you remember, he came to visit us when we were together in Toronto. That was in 1996 when the uh, World Cup, the ice hockey was being played. And I remember Clayton said, he said, I've never seen a sports page where the first six pages are hockey photos. <laughs> but uh, to- <laughs> Toronto. Yeah, Clayton's a little, not a very big guy, but he did quite well. He won the uh, 5A singles and doubles. In Texas, he played at Texas. Um, yeah, he he took a red shirt year, and um, yeah, he was the first guinea pig. I mean, we should get Clayton on the phone. The the, the people he took private lessons from, amazing. But go ahead, right? No, and then that's when uh, I mean, not not to further digress into East Texas tennis, but there was a lot going on at the time with. Uh, Tyler Junior College, um, how it was funded, what you had to do. Um, and I didn't know the ins and outs at the time, but later found out. Um, and there were um, a number of uh, student assistants working with you. One was Dave Anderson and the other was Craig Tiley. Um, Jennifer Roberts, I remember at the time. And uh, they were both studying under you at the time. And uh, that's, that in itself was, looking back to now, was quite remarkable how they got their beginnings. I well, Dave's done very well at Brookhaven. And Craig is um, from University of Illinois as an understudy or assistant uh, um tennis director to tennis director to interim men's coach to have that job permanently and then heading over to Australia. I mean, those I remember to be the stepping stones. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that's what I remember. Well, um, and, on, on both those, uh, those two, but there's so many even before them. Um, but yeah, Dave Anderson he was at Tyler, Texas for three years, but he had a, at autonomy. He started running two clubs in the nearby town. I mentioned Jennifer Roberts. She actually was there. And uh, at one point, one of those clubs in the nearby town, um, 
it was like a revolving door because we were try, trying to help people, the student assistants, they did so much and they were working for just the love of the game. But she was there and then she, um, she went to the Vic Braden Tennis College after two years with us. Then she was, she was the women's coach at Illinois. Um, right. Tylee actually went in as the um, um, director of instruction. The at, They built a new Atkins Tennis Center. But anyway, that's, that was uh, eight years for Anderson, but seven years for Tylee. Um, but, you know, those, those three or even the ones, other ones, one thing for yourself, I know that you were a teaching pro and initially you audited the classes. So you had the privilege of sitting in the classes, but you already had a full-time job. Um, but for our listeners, Richard uh, took it upon himself to, to visit on a yearly basis. We've done so many things with um, Canadian players and various projects. Um, but yeah, that goes back to, I mean, if Clayton was 10, um, but I started there in 81. So many, many things happened before you, you started. You probably started there in like 85, 86. Correct. But let's start so, with, with yeah, time. I mean, I was. Go ahead. So with that, I mean, you got to remember, I was, I was working full with Gabriel Matos, who um, had credibility as a player, both, I think he was like a top 200 at the time. And I believe, you know, locally, he was also competing at, in open events. And so he had a bit of a, a profile there. So it was very difficult for me um, in the context of working for Gabriel, ordered in and try and introduce concepts I was learning at Tyler Junior College um, in the tennis tech program. Um, so I, I, I don't recall that being you know, an abundance of, I, I learned a lot in that during those times. I just knew I had to stay connected. So after I, um, from Tyler, I went to, uh, went back, came back to Canada and I, I started to work at uh, the Richmond Hill Country Club and I was hired by, um, he also worked with a number of pro players, Myron Grunberg. And we'll get into a little bit of his background later on, but he hired me and I've been at Richmond Hill now for, I'm going into my 34th, end of my 34th year. So I started as an assistant, then I became uh, director of tennis um, following Harry Fritz. Uh, Harry Fritz was a former Canadian Davis Cup player and was hired onto the club as head pro. So uh, Taylor, um, Taylor Fritz's uncle. Tennis. Taylor Fritz's uncle, correct. Yeah, Taylor Harry Fritz. And I, yeah, I worked with him or for him uh, two years, I believe. Um, and then I became director. So, you know, during that time, I was able to, you know, maintain a relationship with Steve, Dave Anderson. I, I do recall Dave and Steve, but Steve and Dave were at, uh, there's a local club in Tyler, Timber Creek, that they were working out of. Um, and I took a, a number of kids down to that event, to that program. It was, uh, um, I don't know, how long were you there for, Steve? I was in Tyler from 81 to 91, but yeah, so you brought players back to Tyler. Uh, I remember right. you bringing, uh, our listeners should know, we can just go back, uh, Michelle Greenwood. And you, uh, you brought her to uh, Boca in Canadian tennis. Uh, I was working for uh, Robbie Seguzo, Carling Bassett. They 
owned the facility. Now it's the Chris Everett Tennis Academy. But I remember the uh, girl, um, I think it was Can- Candace Fuchs. Dave Anderson would be great with the names. She was either number one in Florida or number one in the U.S. And I remember Michelle coming down and, and you know, playing and then coming back, you know, a few months later and then beating this young American player. Of course, it was 12 and under tennis. It's just one afternoon, a practice match. And it was very similar to the same question. Is remember Robbie Scuse was saying, how can a player from Canada beat a player from the United <laughs> States? But with the Canadians, I remember they used to have that inferiority complex that, you know, they would have to leave Canada. You you did such a great job training players to, um, you know, the age of 14. You know, and, and we know, I mean, even like going back, you mentioned Gabriel Matos. Um, yeah, he, he was a really good player. He was the best player in the area. He was ranked in the 300s in the world. And, and uh, but I remember some of our students, they, they left working with us to work with Gabriel. And that comes back to some things we could talk about where we were, we were form-based instruction. And then, uh, you know, I think a lot of former players are, you know, what Louis Caillé coined is the great, um, the action method. Um, but that's 34 years in one city. I mean, there's so many things in, in that we talked about are just 34 years, one country, how it's progressed. When, when Mira was on the phone, we talked right. about how it's such a beautiful place, Rich Mill Country Club, is we've been for 34 years. Before we get back, circle back to the tennis teaching, tell us about your own country club. Your wife, Rosalind, has got horses, and Richard's daughter, Claire, was on a scholarship to play golf in the U.S. You got to tell us, you got a driving range. I mean, do you have a putting green? Oh, I know, uh, 10, 10 tennis courts. Uh, well, <laughs> so. Uh, I'll, I'll give you the quick background. So when we came, when we moved up to the property, it was uh, an old farmhouse. And, you know, my wife, Rosalind, walked through with me and she says, we're not living here. <laughs> because they're not disrespectful. <laughs> but, you know, it, it was old. We're not living here was the answer. So, or, or the statement. <laughs> so we ended up building a, a home. Um, I did the best I could. It was, uh, it was a kind of a, a, a do-it-yourself project, but it turned out okay. Nice home. And after I was done with that, um, because I enjoy living up here in the property, I decided to build some tennis courts. And the day um, the excavator came, he um, floated his excavator on the back of a truck, came off, and he asked me, where do I want the courts? You know, do I have a plan, a site plan? I said, no, no, just cut it level right about here. So he looked at me and he said, you realize you're paying me for the day. I said, what does that mean? He said, my daily rate is this. And I forget it was $15,000, $2,000 for the day. He said, but I'll finish this project in about an hour. He says, what else do you want me to do? So I said, well, cut four more, or <laughs> three more, whatever, make it a four court facility. So it ended up being that. And that's how I ended up, started with four courts. And, you know, over time, it took some time because I, you know, not knowing anything about, you know, building grass courts, I had some missteps. And so we did that and I held my first number of events and people enjoyed it. And then I was approached by the OTA to host um, a more significant event. And we end up with about 300 participants every year. Now, so to do that, I had to build six more. Um, so, I, I mean, should I say, could I say 
It's the largest grass court, junior grass court event in North America, possibly. Uh, I don't know if there's anything bigger, but yeah, certainly it's... I was going to say in Philadelphia, yeah. there's some... There's three yeah. three clubs in Philly. I'd have to stop and think. You know, I was at Forest Hills uh, not too long ago, but that's a healthy number of grass courts, though. So. Right. Well, not not the number of grass courts. The number of players that play in the tournament is my my oh, reference to that. Okay. But but yeah, but it's it's just it's just once a year, and you know, outside of that, I just maintain it as a as a. Uh, a recreational with you know my friends or some coaches I've had um, players preparing for Wimbledon uh, Daniel Nestor came many many times uh, over the course of you know three four years in preparation for the grass court season and uh, when Bianca Drescu was um, a junior she came in preparation for junior Wimbledon so with that I mean it's it's, it's sort of length and value to the player base in Toronto. Um, but, you know, it's it's not a commercial setting. So it has its limits, but it's quite nice. I know before the pandemic, uh, Andy, his wife, Leo, is, she's here as well. And we're, we had planned to have a grass court camp at your place. Yeah. Um, I, I've been on your property, but that was back in the early days. It was several years ago now. Let me tell one story. No, that was before we started. Go ahead. No, your visit was before I decided to build courts. Yeah, right, right. You had the house, though. You had the house, and you had the, right. you had the, you had the big garage barn. The, um, but right. for our listeners, I took a job with Tennis Corporation of America um, with Doug Cash, at that time they had 55 indoor clubs, and I was based at a club in Rochester, New York. Uh, most of their clubs, I think, or maybe not all of them, were called Midtown, but that was, it was Midtown Chicago, Midtown Rochester. And I met a, a young Jeremy Wurtzman. He was ranked three in the East. He was 11 years old. And, um, you know, certainly we, Richard and I, Andy knows we've worked so many years together with the whole process of filming and take home videos and skills test charting. But for our, um, trying to tell a young kid who's already ranked three, tell his parents as well. Uh, and his brother, Mark was already a college tennis player at Ohio state. He taught some tennis for me in the summers, but, um, and, you know, we tried to work with Mark's game quite a bit, but, um, uh, Jeremy, he just rebuilt his game, but, I remember calling Richard up and said, Richard, and you just got to drive, drive around Lake Ontario from, from Toronto to, to Rochester. I said, you got to bring Michelle Greenwood down here. And she, I believe was 10 and Jeremy's 11. And, um, you know, she just hit the ball better and she beat him. And that was a major eye opener for, for Jeremy. And he, he went on and won, uh, I remember him winning in his first national title in the 14s, but he was number one in the U.S. in college, college tennis. That had to have helped the parents too, right? Yeah, I mean, it, I always tell people, that, you know, a lot of times in junior tennis, uh, people don't listen to science. And when it comes down to imagery, even, you know, you show them a high-speed film of the pros, at the end of the day, they just want to know who wins. <laughs> and that's unfortunate, especially in the, in the early age groups. We've got some great footage of uh, 
Jeremy on his backhand volley and his backhand underspin. Yeah, the course um, is still posted on uh, yeah. the, the course tennis we intelligence. have. Tennis intelligence applied. Yeah. With, um, but where would you start if you wanted to tell us about, you know, why, why has there been success in uh, Canadian tennis? Well, um, if, if you sort of really consider, I mean, I've, I've been affiliated through friendships or um, professionally with uh, those who make decisions in Canadian tennis. But I would say, you know, if I, if I went um, back to the mid eighties is already, uh, uh, I, um, I would say, a, a, an impetus or some sort of thought about building what they call now the center for excellence. So York university is, um, central Toronto, just North of, you know, downtown Toronto. And they had the land and they permitted a group of volunteer, um, administrators to build a court, a series, a number of courts right there on the campus. And that campus held, at the time it was, I believe, the DeMaurier or the Players, and that was then the Canadian Open. So it moved from the Toronto Lawn, which was a club, um, a very nice club, prestigious club in the city, to York University. And they envisioned building the Centre of Excellence for Tennis. So what we have today is now a, a stadium setting, much like you would see, you know, uh, as a high-end uh, tennis stadium in most parts of the world. Uh, there's a center court. I don't know the seating capacity, but I know it's several thousand, if not ten thousand or so. And um, you know, uh, another center court or show court, and a number of uh, outdoor outside courts. But to do that, um, to get to the, that point, they had to raise a lot of money. And, and that, that task was um, given to a young lady at the time who, who was studying for an MBA, Stacey Allister. And Stacey Allister today is, well, she was the former um, CEO of the WTA. Mm-hmm. And she is today the U.S. Open uh, tournament director. So she was given that task to raise the funds to build what we have now. We call it the Aviva Center, Center for Excellence. And with that building, that facility, um, the tournament, the Canadian Open, became the Rogers Cup in Toronto and um, the Rogers Cup in Montreal. So they have two venues where they alternate between the men and the women every other year. But they're able then from those two events to raise considerable money, either through sponsorship, ticket sales, et cetera. And those funds have been sort of the integral part to player development. So that's one part of it. So mm-hmm. how they raise the money was one part of it. The second part is at York University, and and, and then again, it, it's really not documented as being part or one of the reasons, but York University was the training center at the time going into, I believe, the 86 Olympics for Ben Johnson. And Ben Johnson, Carl Lewis had this great rivalry, U.S. versus Canada kind of thing. And Charlie Francis, who, again, 
was a renowned track and field coach, was always at that center where tennis players from the uh, the would practice at the uh, the tennis center would head over to the track for fitness and physical development, and they would always see these guys um, preparing for you know whether the world championship, Olympics, whatever it was at the mm-hmm. time. And I think that had a large part to do with um, sort of taking away the mystique about being a world-class athlete or, Mm. you know, a world beater in your field. I think that had a lot to do with it. So so I I put that into the mix. The third part that I put into the mix, and and there's always been a discussion about the number of courts um, per per capita in, in, in Canada. I think somebody documented as one to every fifty thousand uh, members. Okay. Yeah, indoor courts, one to, one to fifty thousand people. Right, one to fifty thousand people. So, however, if you took if you took a closer look at the athletes that that are now we would consider um, sort of Canadian leaders in in, in their results, Bianca Andreescu, Milos Rionic. Dennis Shapovalov, Daniel Nestor, Peter Polanski, um, Andrew Schneider. You know, this is just to name a few. Um, all of them were close to top 50 at one point in their career, if not top 50, except for Peter Polanski. But I mean, he might have cracked the top 100 at one point. You'll have to double check that fact. But there's a corridor that I would consider to be central to this and that's <clears throat> if you went from Lake Ontario north there's a, there's two highways the Don Valley Express and the 427 and in that corridor all these players come out of that corridor and the reason I think that is is that you know our public transport is from a subway standpoint is limited we have two lines north south and at the time one line going east west now we have two lines going east-west. But with it, that in itself takes you to all the indoor facilities and or, you know, um, exchanges where you can get on a bus to get to them. And I think that was a large part of it as well. Um, because, <clears throat> again, you you look in that corridor and you, you, you would calculate out the number of residents, the number of people living here, and the number of indoor courts. And all of a sudden, that number between one to 50,000 might be one to 10,000, might be one to 15,000. I don't know the exact calculations, but there are more courts in that indoor court, in that corridor, than anywhere else in Canada. Mm. So I think that's a large part to do with it. You know, um, so when it's all sort of said and done, um, you know, do I have the answers? No, but I just throw those ideas out and those thoughts out as to why Canadian tennis, um, you know, took some leaps, say, in the last three decades, you know, from the mid-80s up to now, right? So you, you're looking at, um, you look at a number of, number of reasons, but certainly, you know, if I had to say one thing, the money raised by Stacey Allister to build those tennis centers was probably... I would say the foundation, the the cornerstone, the the moment where Canadian tennis could make jumps because all of a sudden we had money available to support 
ITF events, pro events, attract the best players in the world to the these 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 two tournaments. So it, it gave access to Canadian players um, opportunities to play against the best in the world. Yeah, on that with um, on many different levels, you just really touched upon exposure with all three points. Um, I think of Jim Courier. I've seen he's a former number, number one player in the world, and you know, we listen to him in our living rooms because he's a TV commentator. He has a healthy ego. But Jim said when he stayed at the Olympic Village, um, he was very humbled. Yeah. Um, he These said, guys he, are athletes. He, he had, the quote was, I used to think I was an athlete. <laughs> but I think also we, we talked about that with Miron, is tennis in Canada, uh, you're not the land of the car trunk pro. Because of the winter weather, you have to be connected to a, to an indoor center. Going way back to Mike Belkin, I remember watching him play in the 70s. He was a top Canadian who right. went, to, went to Florida at a very young age. And, um, you know, granted, uh, you, you have to go where the competition is, but the thinking really changed. Um, I mean, you know, there's so many players from Thornhill, Richmond Hill, that York University area that were top 100. I actually have a list of in front in front of me. Um, but the thinking changed from going to top 100 to top 10. Um, let's talk a little bit about coaching. Um, I know uh, Peter Burwash, a Canadian, um, he set up PBI, Peter Burwash International. I think he just started that in 1975, the program that you and I were part of. Um, essentially, we were both studying tennis together. I might have been in charge, but we were studying tennis together. And his organization would come in every year. He was the first headliner. He called me up and came in on his own nickel to help us out. But I can remember um, it's in Bobby Orr's hometown, Perry Sound, Ontario. That they ran up. It was called Camp Manitowabing. and I mean, lots of I remember lots of young coaches, you know, old coaches for that matter. People that were really eager to learn. I never never had the chance to go to that, but I remember you know getting the notes. Um, a couple different from a couple different summers, but Peter really on an international level, more so I think even here in this country with the USPTA. Um, but he he really didn't have that much to do with Canadian tennis as uh, from as far as methodology, correct? Right. So, and I mean, from what I remember, um, Peter Borish International was very much set on professional standards as it was customer service. Um, I, I mean, I'm certain, you know, that he had um, standardization in terms of, you know, how he wanted his coaches to coach on the court, but I don't think it was lock, stock, and barrel. No, that's, um, that's right. That's right. Uh, you, we, Richard and I, I mean, we go back so many years now. You mentioned one of your classmates, Craig Tiley. When he went to the University of Illinois and, you know, Jennifer was there to really open up some doors um, because the men's coach lost his job and but Tylee initially his players when they traveled they wore slacks um blue blazer of course they had the 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 orange necktie but with that that came from peter burwash you know we we used to train players i should say players um students that were going to become tennis teaching professionals you go to interviews this is how you dress you know you know um and, you know, certainly men and women, we would dress, you know, how to go through an interview. But that's right. You, right. Uh, service. Um, what about, um, 
Louis Caillé action method? Well, right. So let's go back a little bit. So Pierre Lamarche um, was owner-operator director for the All-Canadian Tennis Academy. And they had the ability to lease space at that time before the, the current Center for Excellence at the old Tennis Canada venue, which was also at York University. There were four uh, courts that were under bubble and a number of outdoor courts. And uh, Pierre had the chance or the ability to rent those courts. And in doing that, he became uh, director for play development at one point for Tennis Canada, but also had influence on uh, how to uh, improve coaching in the country. And Louis, um, being from Quebec, Pierre from Quebec, they had a meeting of the minds, and Pierre brought Louis in, um, who, you know, Louis, I don't know if, if his first sport was tennis. I don't believe it was, but he had studied um, uh, this action method from Europe. <clears throat> and um, yeah, he credits a coach from Swi- Switzerland. Correct. Yeah. So, um, and uh, in conjunction with that, Pierre also brought forward the idea of periodization. There was a, a professor at York University. Uh, I, think, I, I honestly forget his name. I apologize. Um, who was very much into periodization as it related to athletic development and, and performance. Um, and, that became part of the certification process. In other words, coaches had to become familiar with periodization in terms of essentially blocks of learning, you know, whether it was in preparation, it was fundamental development, in preparation for tournaments, recovery, but that became part of the equation for certification. So it's evolved over the years. I remember, Steve, I don't know if you remember this, but while you were in Toronto for a couple of years, you were here mid nineties. Um, there's, there's always, you know, strength in numbers and Richmond country club with the program we were running always had the fact of sending for the size of program we had a disproportionate number of plays to nationals and all you know, they were winning provincial titles, etc. And I remember there was a, a time when we would have, you know, um, these tournaments where uh, Team Ontario would, would select the players based on, you know, a point value, a point system to to go to nationals. And there were occasions where we would, in a, in a quarterfinal event, the club, Richmond Hill, would have seven of the eight quarterfinalists. So with that, um, Ari Novak, who at the time was in charge of certification, you know, asked for a meeting with you. And I, I know that was one of the one of the moments when Ari decided to entertain how certification in the country would change. So even into to, today's certification, Iran went through it, and I think he mentioned it when he spoke with them. One of the things they require him to do is film a pre and a post to show the work you're doing to get certified at the coach three level. Um, 
And that idea came through your discussion with uh, Ari at the time. I can remember Ishvan Toth, who worked with you, a great guy from Hungary. Um, I remember him setting that up and said, Steve, you have to help Tennis Canada. You have to help Tennis Canada. And I said, it won't work. Right. I said, it, we, but we did have the meeting. I remember Ari saying, well, Steve, you teach stereotypical strokes. <laughs> and, um, but, but anyway, I told Ari, uh, Ishvan, I'm sorry. I said, it won't work. I said, now I'm living in Toronto. I'm here because my kids are playing ice hockey. And I'm no, no longer an out-of-town expert. An out-of-town expert is someone with a slideshow. I mean, they're they're from out of town and they have a slideshow. So I was I had a slideshow, but I was from in town because I was a resident of Toronto at one point. I'm glad you mentioned Pierre Lamarche. He was a personality. I remember meeting him many times back in, you know, going back to 70s and 80s through Dennis Vandermeer. But I can remember the All Canadian Tennis Academy, Tyler Junior College, had so many great foreign players. And back in the day, when people would come over from overseas, you know, they didn't know the difference between TJC, Tyler Junior College, or USC. There's, there'd be many foreign players playing junior college tennis. I remember one of the students I helped, uh, asking him how he lost, and he, he had played Michael Pernforce in the junior college final. But Pierre was, I thought he was in London, not in Toronto, when he had his academy. But yeah, he had kids from Australia and New Zealand. And, and again, coming back to our original comment where I was thinking, why are we, why would people be going to London, Ontario? I mean, I went all over Ontario as a kid playing hockey and I was like, why would anybody be going to London, Ontario for tennis? Will you comment more right. on that? So, so Pierre, Pierre had uh, a live-in academy where he was bringing kids uh, from the city um, to live with him full-time and train. Um, so just based on his access to courts and court availability um, and, and how he could lease courts to do that. I think the, the club that he was at in, in London, Ontario, you know, allowed for that. But having said that, though, he was also, you know, after a while, he had uh, sites in Mississauga or Burlington. Um, he had affiliations with... Uh, the older generation, and I don't know if you remember these guys, but Harry Fauquier, Keith Carpenter, um, Ken Sinclair, all those, those, those three or four guys were instrumental in helping Tennis Canada, you know, get additional funding and build uh, on what they have, what they had before. So, you know, Pierre had a lot of connections with that, and he was able to, you know, maneuver in and out of um, different circles. And then that's how he ended up at York University. London itself, I mean, there was a coach that worked, you know him as well, uh, he worked for, for me. He was actually trained by Dave Anderson. He was attending the University of Texas um, and decided to rebuild his game to turn pro, Hubert Karash. Yeah. And I think he spent a considerable amount of time with Dave Anderson. And... Um, yeah, first with, 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 with Dave Anderson, then it's a remarkable story, really. Um, he went to play a money tournament. It was in East Texas, and Anderson was in charge of these two clubs. And he was already in the lineup at Texas. I remember he was a junior Wimbledon doubles runner-up, but he he just, I hate the expression, but he bought in. So, yeah, I spent quite a bit of time with him. Richard Bodian, 
Um, but he, his mother is uh, Japanese, and Richard or Hubert at one time was number one in Japan. But he also was good enough. You know, he wasn't a a, a plane member, but he was a practice member of the uh, Canadian Davis Cup team. So it served him well to change his strokes. He uh, he was ranked number one in the ITFs. But I, I didn't yeah. know he. So he was he was with Pierre at one point. He started with Pierre. Okay. Pierre, when Pierre was in London, Pierre gave uh, Hubert um, a partial scholarship, but not a full scholarship, to train his academy. And you know, Hubert is you know he's a soldier in terms of going to work on the court and he did what he's told in terms of hours of training and so forth. He became a prominent player in Canadian junior tennis before he went to university in Texas, um, but. You know, coming back to Pierre, I mean, you know, Pierre is, he has an MBA. He's a, he's a smart businessman. Um, he certainly is um, you know, a, a, a willful personality, a strong personality. I remember um, when Stacey, Allison, and myself were good friends, um, housemates at one point, and she would, you know, get me access into the players lounge when the tournament came to town and so there's players like Andre Agassi Pete Sampras Michael Chang you know, Michael Puffett a whole list of players Dave Wheaton a whole list of players at the time who's who in tennis would come and play this event and there was a small area no bigger than a classroom size of a classroom they were using it as a players' lounge where everybody would congregate, and you know, before they match, after they match. Anyway, Pierre would have the ability to walk into that room because he used to, that was his training center for his junior program. It was his house, but he would walk into that room and just suck the oxygen out of the entire room. It didn't matter who was there. What, what know, do you mean by that? Suck the oxygen. Also, What's that mean? So he, he basically controlled the room. He was the center of attention. Didn't matter who was in the room. He was the, the center of attention. Everybody wanted to speak to him. Okay. And right behind him was a young player, junior player at the time, Daniel Nestor. And he just made Daniel Nestor feel like he belonged. Mm. Right? And there's, and I think one of the sort of critical moments in Canadian tennis and Pierre Lamarche was the Davis Cup captain for Canada. And we were hosting Sweden at the time. Um, Stefan Edberg, I believe he's number one or thereabouts at the time, playing for Sweden. Uh, Nesta beats him in five sets here in Canada, right? And Pierre Lamarche was the captain. And I think that was a moment in Canadian tennis too that sort of said, yeah, you know, we, we, the country, can look at playing at this level. Now, let's sort of look at the last 30 years because it, it, it's sort of, today you think that, you know, we have all the answers because we have Felix, Dennis, Bianca, Vashik, you know. I mean, Eugene Bouchard is, is not, um, from a results standpoint, significant but you think we have the answer but if you actually look at the last 
30 to 35 years, the number of top 100 players, I don't think it exceeds more than 30 players. Really, I don't think it does. So in, in terms of, you know, long-term results, or, or you look back 30 years, there's not that number of players that you would say were world-class top 100 players. You know, it just, it, so you, it begs the question, today's results, right, are they you know, part of a system or are they a blip out of the ordinary? And it's tough to say. Um, Tennis Canada relies heavily on funding these players to uh, get international experience. Um, Milos himself was um, sort of the first success story out of the uh, um, the, the new center records that, that, that they had high performance in Montreal and they had a high performance program in Toronto. And so the pro play development program was in Montreal. Um, we'll talk about it in a little bit, but Louis Bofiga was brought over from France and he was to head the high performance development program in Montreal. And Right out of juniors, uh, Milos was the first profile player to attend that program. Um, but it was a limited number of players there. I think uh, Fred Niemeyer was his coach, and, and Fred had, I believe, a top 150, 200 ranking at the time. And they felt that he was the best coach to travel with Milos. But it took money to send Milos on the road. And so the money that they were using from that moment on to date really is it kind of dried up with COVID now, with, not have, with the ability to not be able to host the tournaments. I mean, Canada, Tennis Canada's hit a, a brick wall. Um, yeah, yeah, I've read that. You know, they had 150 employees, they're down to 50%, yeah. you know, and quite a few of those guys that were, were cut were the coaches that were running these centers. So, you know, it'll come back to, you know, who's really doing the work, um, who's really vested. And I'd say, you know, the private sector does the bulk of the heavy lifting, but I certainly think Tennis Canada gives, you know, immense opportunities for players to travel um, once they get to that international level. Let, let me go ahead, Andy. Go ahead, Andy. Yeah, which I just wanted to go back to one point that you mentioned about Daniel Nestor um, making making him feel like he belonged in in the players' lounge. You know, Steve talks about exposure all the time. What kind of things would Pierre do to make him feel like he belonged? I mean, it's just a players' lounge. It's not like they're on the court, you know, returning serves and getting comfortable with the level of play. What were the kind of things that made him feel that way? So. Pierre has a great ability to speak, um, and in, in those situations, you see Pierre almost lecturing, you know, our visitors. The Andre is about to go on the court, and he's, he's talking to him in such a way that he's 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 not questioning, he's not asking for advice. He's telling him about Canada, and he's telling him about you know um, the environment he's going to experience out there. You can just you can hear these words coming out of his mouth, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, when when you speak to somebody, you know, in, especially in, Canadians are so polite, 
try to have a two-way conversation. Pierre was one of these guys who would just, you know, as I say, suck the energy out of the room. He had the ability not not to be led in those situations, but mm-hmm. to lead, take the lead. No matter if he was faking it or not, he would he would have the ability to just to, you know, no, no, this is this is how it's going to be. And I think Nesta, you know, um, yeah, I mean, Nesta had a number of experiences. I think one of the experiences Nesta might have had at the same time, you know, I don't remember, the, the Canadian that became a British player, Greg Rosetsky. And Rosetsky uh, left Canada as a top 48 player, and I believe he became a top 10 player in, in playing for Britain. And it was it was that kind of relationship that you know Nesta uh, with Pierre with the coaches in Quebec they believed that they could they could do this they really did believe they 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 mm-hmm. actually documented it I've seen um, these papers that they would write about what their five year plan would be in terms of number of top hundred players and some of it was you know certainly a uh, a, a, a paper which you know just words but no real action plan but it was it was said and people started to adopt the idea that they could and uh, you know I, I think Pierre was an instrumental player in, in yeah putting forward no he was a major personality I know one thing with um, our listeners have to um, I guess be informed by us that we're not really going to be a a podcast that's a magazine where we're just interviewing people. Um, we're going to interview people from our extended network. Um, I recently read, um, actually I heard an Irish writer should be able to tell you his name. Um, I would guess, but I might be wrong, but are you, are you a parasite? Are you a producer producers and parasites? But let me just go back over a few things. If if, go ahead, sorry, real quick, just to finish that point. I just thought, um, you know, as far as being comfortable around those players where it's like, okay, you know, you take out the mystique, you know, or the fear factor, you could say, where you just say, okay, I'm hanging out with Agassi and he's a normal guy and I'm going to get on the court and feel comfortable around them. I remember a few years ago, we were at the U.S. Open, Steve, with a player, I won't mention his name, but the player was in, you know, okay, I'm competing with these guys, but he was getting his picture taken with, with famous tennis players. You know, and Steve talks about a lot, like, hey, don't don't ask for autographs because, hey, you know, you're going to beat that guy. So to not put them on a really high level. But I think that kind of proves that point where it's like, okay, I'm one of the gang here. I can do this. I won't mention any names either. Ram Ramanathan. <laughs> <laughs> Great kid. He's never, right, he, Steve. He, he, it was uh, Ram. It was, uh, I'm going, what are you doing getting your picture taken with Murray? By the end of the day, he had his arm, photo with Nadal, photo with Federer. I mean, I can see that, you know, some of those top guys, you know, but, but yeah. No, I've seen, I've seen, I've seen, I've seen top 20 players um, waiting patiently. You know, the next thing you know is they're having a little photo shoot with Roger Federer. But on the uh, internet to go back, um, people want to go to the nth degree, just put in Tennis Canada, long-term athlete development, 78 pages. I think it's just great that they use the word athlete. That sense of belonging um, with, yeah. here's a story for you. Danny Cooper, who we've trained, he's a lawyer now. He, he spent some time with Greg Rosetsky. 
And I remember Greg Ruzetsky, this is how it works. He lost to John Lafayette, who lived with us when he was a kid. And so next thing you know is Cooper's telling Mr. Ruzetsky that he has to come to work with me. Cooper said he could always serve. Cooper said he had his hitting his ground strokes better than he hit him when he was top 10 in the world. Um, but he didn't hit too many ground strokes. But then also, too, it came back to somebody else told him, hey, you know, take the racket low. And Cooper saying, take the racket high. And it wasn't a, a coaching relationship that lasted a long time. So, but if Robert Janicek, he came to you and I and he wanted to be trained. And he was number two in the NCAs. And I remember just telling him, are you sure? Are you sure? You know, he was... He's going to take the turn where he's going to go from playing to coaching. He wasn't chicken liver. I mean, this guy was uh, a, a UCLA player, as I said, two in the NCAs. He hit the ball so – the way he hit the ball was just out of curiosity. I mean, he hit the ball so similar. He, he, he very much looked like Nestor. But here's a tennis story. So Rosetsky, who grew up in Quebec, he's staying in Yanichek's house. He's staying with Yanichek's family. And Mr. Rosetsky said to the Yanicheks, your kid's not going to be as good as my kid. You're spending a lot of money on your kid. Why don't you have your kid not play tennis and help me fund my kid? <laughs> but anyway, Rosetsky, he, he, um, I told Cooper, I said, I'll tell you what, just get him on an airplane, just pay for his food, and we'll do the work pro bono. But I ended up getting on the phone. Uh, with Mr. Rosetsky called me up, and he said, well, I'm coming too. And I said, oh, really? And he said, yeah, just what, what hotel will you be putting this up at? And I told him, I said, <laughs> I, I said, no, sir. I said, we, we, you know, for Cooper, we'll help you with this, with this tennis game, come down and, you know, he will put him in a bunk bed and, but uh, crazy, crazy, crazy. But I, I think one thing that you touched upon is a sense of belonging. But before you get into Louis Borfiga, you mentioned Montreal. You know, I certainly read and been told by Canadian coaches uh, I mean, I, as you know, and through you and through others, I've worked with so many Canadian players with, and I know Michael Downey came in and raised a lot of money and, and uh, LaMarche, um, you know, gives him a lot of credit for the money he raised. You know, then he he was with Tennis Canada, he left the LTA and he's, he's, he's been back. But um, he, uh, Pierre LaMarche's feelings were hurt a little bit that uh, they brought in uh, the Australian Bob Brad and then they brought in the Frenchman. Louis Borfiga, um, with the well, pri with the private yeah, sector, so, there's are there tensions between Tennis Canada and the private sector, or is that a, how does that work? Yeah, so are there tensions? Yes, there are tensions. Um, Tennis Canada uh, developed this concept of a pipeline, and it, it, it really the pipeline in their eyes is. The players are developed in the clubs in Tennis Canada at some point in the player's career, whether it's the under-12 age group or the under-16, 17, 18 age group, will take over if these players meet the international norms. So the, the problem is, is that, and as you all know, um, for Tennis Canada to do the work that they want to do, they're not doing developmental training. Um, you know, the simple thing like uh, understanding the grips. Um, you will you will not know 
you know, the grip system, if you are trained at Tennis Canada, you will not understand um, the, the, the ability of, you know, which grip is most efficient for which strokes, um, which grip, you know, requires the least amount of adjustment, how to develop swings with, with the context of a ready position. You will not understand the systems who can't handle. They take players that have um, national profile. So let's say an under 12 player. We had a, a young player um, a couple of years back. Uh, Tennis Canada were looking at players in January, say. And they had a short list of players that they were recruited. They already tagged one of our players, a lefty, um, to go to the program uh, in Toronto. And there was another player that they didn't even see. Um, anyway, this, this young boy ends up winning a national title um, a couple of days before they were to start the program. And they made their selections in that age group. The, the kid of our, our program wins a national title. And under their, their sort of guidelines, this young boy had to be in the program at Tennis Canada. They sent him an email two, three days before the program was to begin, right? Sent the parents an email. There was no, Miron was working with the young man primarily, but he was in, he was in our program full time. Um, there was no discussion with Miron. There was no discussion with myself. There were no guidelines as to how you would transition from our program because you'd already, you know, registered with us and, paid the fee for the semester, whatever it was. Um, there was no discussion. So that is an example of how um, sort of cumbersome the system can become. So with that, and it, and it doesn't just happen myself, it happened with a few other academies. So with that, in that, I think it was 2018, 2019, you know, the beginning of 2019, I can't remember exactly, there was a, a huge... Uh, not revolt, but certainly, you know, a fair number of the local coaches got together and a number of um, letters um, and papers were written as to, and when, as, a, as a group, we've, we've, we termed it, trying to take the high road, as how to improve Canadian tennis. But it was really a revolt against the money that Tennis Canada had wasn't being funneled down to the levels where all the work was being done. It was being kept at the sort of the the, uh, the centers mm -hmm. to you know hire you know, three or four coaches, fitness coach, psychologists, you know, and and work with you know half a dozen to a dozen kids, and it, it made it it made it difficult. I mean, it goes back to um, you know, what is the priority for for Canadian play development? And there's it, it a mixed bag of ideas, but, you know, we can all agree upon that the best Canadian play should be given competitive opportunities. So we all agreed upon that. But outside of that, there was no agreement on, you know, when a play should go, who it should be, how he should get there, what what are the criterias, you know, the tennis counter would use to invite a player? It was never agreed upon. So 
So I think in the end, Tennis Canada just decided to go the way they wanted to go, which was invite the players as they wanted, irrespective of what the private sector had to do. Same thing happened with um, Milos. I believe Milos was in Florida at the time with Casey Curtis and had done some decent things and was looking, you know, like he had the profile that they wanted. But, you know, similar to, you know, these other boys, um, Tennis Canada contacted the parents and set a meeting up and there wasn't a consultation with Casey to facilitate this. It was just, you know, we've made incisions for him, no fans or buts. And that's where it becomes problematic. So in, in our instance, in, you know, and, and I'll just use the, the loose term academy, but our junior program, when you take out, you know, one player that everybody sort of grew up with, let's say, and they feel, you know, affiliated with, you know, and you invite them into uh, a Tennis Canada program. To, and, and, and trust me, this kid, this, this 12-year-old, had unbelievable traveling opportunities. I remember in the first four months, I think he traveled like to Europe, he went to Paris, he went to South America. Um, he may have gone to Paris twice, he may have gone to Europe twice in the first, not even six months, four months. I mean, an unbelievable experience. So when Tennis Canada provides that to to, to Milos, to uh, Bianca, to Dennis, they're, they're, they're really trying to take a, a grip hold of, of the player's life with the finances that, and, and, the, and the opportunities that they can offer. So it becomes a problem. And one of the, the tasks that this group was trying to do was actually have um, an audit of sorts with the money that's been spent on play development because it it was up in the you know tens of millions of dollars and as a as a by way of reviewing how well Tanner's Canada has been doing, they wanted to look at the money spent and the results we've achieved. And it it, it it's listen, it's I don't know if it's the right approach, but it's certainly that was the idea that this group wanted to at least they use the word transparency. They wanted Tennis Canada to be more transparent with the funding that they were providing these players and, and how they were attracting them out of the program. Because you know, I used the, the phrase at one point, I thought it was undermining the junior development system because once you take, and, and bear in mind, this is how it works in junior tennis, you know, it's almost like a Siamese twin approach. They feel like they're connected to the hit junior players. So if you take one player, you know, three or four players feel they should be going too. And it yeah. kind of uh, dislodges the. No, the, the money's a factor. Like, say, here in the U.S., uh, the USTA, if they have they have money, they, they've got uh, a deep, deep pocketbook, um, they, wild cards. Um, I can remember um, being at a junior tournament in Montreal with player from your program, Robert Steckley, who Ishvan Toth really did so much work with, but I um, helped out with his game very, very much as well. And, but it was at a national tournament and, you know, Louis Caillé is right there as, at that time as a leader of Canadian tennis to meet with him. And then, so the young kid's going to get that warm up with the, the big red maple leaf. And then also too, as I think the, the federations, 
Um, many times they hire former players that haven't really circled back. And I think a lot of former players, when they start to coach, uh, you know, they're going to coach uh, very much the way they ended up training. Okay, let's do some cross courts. Let's yeah. do some down the line, some two-on-ones. Let's play some tiebreakers. And, you know, what, what's that person going to do with, uh, you know, 12, 10-year-olds all at the same time? Right. Right. Without, and, well, and that's why they would pick the most skilled, the best players, because it's, it, it could mirror what they understood to be player development. You know, with those players, it, it, you couldn't take the best athletes. I mean, I, I can't think of a scenario where, um, you know, a, a player with um, some technical issues got better uh, going through that system. It, it's, it's problematic at best because they're, they're looking for a result. So, you know, under the pipeline system, you know, a, a critical part is they actually make decisions to cut players, right? And so when that happens, that's a problem for the player themselves and the parents because the parent now has become used to um, the funding they've received for travel and training. And now they have to enter back into the private sector. And it's, it's not the same equation of free training, immense travel, those kind of things. So again, it, it's, it's it's imbalanced in how they select them, and there's there need to be some work as to how and when they cut a player, how they help them re-enter into the private sector, whether it's you know through partial funding or something of that nature to assist the parents. Because you know most parents don't live in um, you know sort of financial wherewithal to know what the future holds until months from now. So they go with, you know, the, the today expenses. And, and when you're giving back your child, say, well, here you go. You can have him back and you can pay his way. Most parents aren't ready for that. So it, 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 it's a problem. But again, it, we're at different times. Our COVID has presented a whole different mixed bag of issues. And one is, you know, where's the next bag of loot coming from to, you know, stay the course of what they've been doing? And I think it's going to be a problem. I think it's going to be a serious problem. I think that there will be some some private money coming forward to help us out. But I, I, you know, how it's administered and how it's controlled, I don't know. But I'm, well, I'm, yeah, the pandemic, the silver lining. There could be positives. You know, we like to tell people there's you know positives within a negative and negatives within a positive. Uh, like college tennis could be totally revamped. And it, it, I mean, all of tennis, I mean, how, how does a player, I know you talk about the, the war of financial attrition to be become a tennis pro. Um, it's so expensive um, with to, to play tennis, to learn how to play. And it, it should be more, does a, does a teacher have the skill to teach 24 kids at one time? Does the coach have the skill to teach the parent to teach the kid? Does the coach have the skill to teach people how to practice? Um, you know, peer teaching. We always talk about how that's very powerful. Maybe some of the participation could be coming back. We were talking briefly today about how bike sales had gone up, way up, at least around here in Florida where the weather's nice, but maybe it's going to get more people outside because it is a little bit of a social distance. Yeah, Mackenzie McDonald uh, through Matt Clore, beginning of the pandemic, he spent almost three weeks here. 
you know, in our bubble and uh, his mother has a bike shop and uh, yeah, people have got outside more and, mm-hmm. but also it's a safe sport, right? The bike is safe. And in tennis, uh, some of the, the contact collision sports um, are in, are in question right now. Yeah. Tell us about team Ontario or tennis Ontario. I mean, I know that you've sent, for example, in the past, many groups, I mean, like a group of 12 kids, and, but you've done more with Tennis Ontario than you have with Tennis Canada, or are, are they under, in my idea is that like, are they working in the same building, but are they necessarily working together? Same thing in this country. Is there a connection between, like say the Texas Tennis Association or the Inner Mountain, or um, the Midwest, all those, all of the different 17 sections? Um, what, what's the right. bridge? How, do, how are they connected to Tennis Canada? How does that work? So, I would say the the strongest bridge or the strongest connection is in the competitive structure. So, Tennis Ontario has an unbelievable competitive structure based on the number of competitive plays we have. Um, kids are able to play easily, and I believe the number is 80 competitive matches a year where they, they've identified that number being the appropriate number for junior players to play as a development player. Um, so Tennis Canada, t- sorry, uh, Ontario Tennis is able to offer that. Now that uh, uh, Ontario Tennis is able to offer that, they really control the, 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 the ranking system, so to speak, with the number of tournaments they offer. The ranking system is operated by Tennis Canada. So while they agree on what the ranking system is, um, Tennis Canada has to balance the the value of each event with other events nationally. So that's where it becomes a bit of a problem. So we, we might have, let's say, for example, you, you asked about Team Ontario. So Team Ontario sends a group to the under-14 nationals. Vancouver will send a group. Alberta will send a group. Um, or British Columbia will send a group. Sorry, sorry. British Columbia, Alberta, uh, uh, Manitoba, Quebec, and so on. Everybody sends a group to represent the province at nationals. But that system doesn't necessarily get the best players in the country to nationals. Because each each province has a select number of spots that they have to fill, right? As equal representation, that's one of the mandates that, that Tennis Canada has. So that's where there's a bit of a um, uh, an unsettling issue between Ontario Tennis and Tennis Canada. So you know the ranking system certainly, or the, the, the competitive structure is one of them. The other part of it is this: is that with Ontario Tennis, they represent the clubs locally. So they're funded in part by the provincial government and funded part by Tennis Canada. But their funding really comes, majority is from dues from um, the, the clubs. So when there's an upset with the local academies and Tennis Canada losing players to the Tennis Canada program, Ontario Tennis has to step in and be a little bit of the heavy with Tennis Canada in terms of, you know, it's not right, should be doing this. 
So it becomes political on that end. Um, but, you know, they, again, I'm sure, see, these conversations go on forever like this, but I'm sure that in, in most countries there's always, you know, a, a group of people who are upset with the, the, the National Federation, you know, and have power in the Provincial Federation and the local groups of players. I'm sure that's the same thing goes on throughout the world. But when it comes down to play development in this country, um, I think the competitive structure has offered a lot of value to um, uh, players getting up right up to the, the, the ITF level. There's, there's a lot of value right up to the ITF level uh, here, here in Ontario. And, and Tennis Canada realizes that. So, yeah, no, I, you know, I do. With I, that, and, I was just going to say that the, a lot of college coaches, uh, Andy Jackson, he was at Florida. Um, now he's, um, I think it was Mississippi, then Florida, now Arkansas, the SEC, always on the men's side. And he's a, he has a connection to players from France, but uh, how people, he says that, you know, everybody's being negative towards their federation and being very critical. Um Oh, the federations like the USDA in this country, they, they do a lot of great things. I, I, I remember being in Canada, and I use this as an example. It's not to beat up Tennis Canada, but it's like, who made this decision? Is, um, you know, through you, I spent a lot of time coaching Mario Cosentino, and I did video work for uh, Frankie Danzevic. So I'm at the National 14s, and there's a young guy, um, I think he was from Ottawa, and his last name was Sylvan. Miron would know, but so he ended up being a very good player, played at Georgia and he was just big for his age. But so the three of them, so Mario wins his third place match, which is huge. So if he, if he wins that match, he's on team Canada and he's going to Japan for the world 14s and the kids are all pumped up. And then right before a few days before they thought we've made a change instead of sending three players and one coach, we're going to send two players and two coaches. So I do think that the, the, the federations uh, get beat up, but sometimes rightfully so. Like who made that decision? Um, just how to take, right. how to take the air out of someone's sails. <laughs> just, I mean, that's just like, right. wow, too bad. Someone who it, wanted to go to Japan, it, that's so, who made that decision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I've always wanted to go to Japan. Well. Well, you know, and again, you, you you look at you look at the the um, the decisions that tennis tennis Canada has made over the years, and we get to the point where we have you know U.S. Open champion, you know, a, a player in the men's side in the top ten. Um, I think Felix is top twenty five. Um, Ashley is resurfaced as a top hundred player, and so on. So you, you, they they will always defend themselves with look at our current state of affairs. But the truth is, and Tennis Canada admit to this, is that where these players help them is in um, giving uh, profile to the sport. And with that, they're able to garner more money. And with that, you know, they can continue the cycle of funding athletic development. Irrespective of if it came through them or not, they see it as a win. So, um, you know, 
you would speak to the who's who's tennis Canada and they, they will be open and honest about, yeah, we really didn't help that player, but he helps us. Mm. Or we didn't really help that player, but she helps us, you know, and, um, but there are decisions made in an effort to help players that you go, wait a minute, because there's, there's not cohesion with player development. And, and I'm sure, Steve, that's the one plus. I mean, you know, you're talking about player development. I mean, the, you know, the grip system. And for me to be able to go through a grip system with my coaches, most of the coaches on my staff are my former players. Um, so it's easy for me to easier for me to go through that today, but I'm sure if I was a brand new uh, head pro at another club, it's far more difficult. Yeah, because as you said, you've got you've got all these personalities, and and, and some of it is is that you know I, I'm friends with uh, the director for tennis for all the Mayfairs, four Mayfairs, and he he's not a technician. He's He's certainly a businessman. He knows how to to fill the courts, but he's not a technician. But he's in charge of player development and junior programs. He certainly passes that responsibility off to those head coaches in those particular clubs. But they're not. It's four clubs under the same name that have different systems and, and different head coaches offering different services. And no, Canada is pretty much like that. No, it's like in the in the U.S. Um Dave Anderson's names uh, come up. He's in charge of the instruction at the flagship for Club Corp. Club Corp has over 200 tennis clubs and they're all, everyone is a different culture because the culture is determined by the tennis director. Um, Correct. With, um, but your, your club is a happening place. Um, I met Myron Grunberg through you. And then years later, you know, he was working for the, the Roddicks and he ran their academy. Then he bought the academy, but he retained the Roddick name. And he was um, associated with Davis Cup. And then I remember uh, John Sorbo, who I didn't really know that well, but he seemed like he was just, a, you know, hitting with Carlo Lavosi. They were friends. And, you know, then he, I know he started coaching Danzevic. And the next thing you know is that, He's the coach of the Davis Cup, and now Danzevic is coaching Davis the Davis Cup team. Um, so it just seems like it's a it's you're dealing with a smaller group of people. I mean, obviously we're uh, or you're ten percent to our population, but um, right. I can remember. And I remember. I uh, what's that? I don't think we're ten percent of your tennis population, though. No, it, no, yeah, no, it, that's a good it, point. Yeah. That's a very good. Point. Yeah, I mean, and that's but the, here's here's where you you look at John Sobert's an American, just came here to live. He married a Canadian lady, um, and he stayed. Right, um, Harry Fritz is an American, um, same thing. Married a Canadian lady and stayed. Casey Curtis is an American um, from California. He's dual citizenship. Yeah. He 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 is, you know, quite comfortable in Canada, but he's an American. So, you know, again, you, you look at you look at all these different personalities that have gone through. You know, Louis Bourfigue is French. Half the team he hired uh, was from France. The other half, perhaps, I think, was from Spain. So, you know, 
our 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 system really isn't a system. It's a collective group of personalities have added something. Um, you know, Miran went through the the history of Dennis and, and Felix, and you know, Tessa came from Israel. Um, I interviewed her for the club job. She she honestly couldn't speak English, and I said demonstrate for me how you teach the forehand. Mm-hmm. And all she did was show me a loop. I said, okay, it will work. <laughs> but she couldn't speak English. Well, why don't you tell our so, listeners, that's Dennis, uh, Dennis's mom. How do you yes, pronounce Tess, his last name? Shapovalov. Yeah. Good Irish name. Shapovalov. Shapovalov is his name. The female version, Shapovalova. Yeah. That's how you over is the ladies and of is the men. Well, let but, me, let me ask this question know, with Myron Grunberg. I know that w- at one time, you know, he was, I guess had a little bit more of a speaking part, more influence with uh, tennis Canada. I remember where um, he was talking to you about getting involved with tennis Canada and teaching little kids. Um, I know through you going way back to Bob Muffet. I remember having a conversation with Bob Muffet about being a, the technical director for tennis Canada then I ran this academy with Carling Bassett, who was eight in the world, Canadian. Um, with when when it comes down to just to tie some of those things together with little kid tennis, um, tell us about Dennis with Tessa. I mean, how how old was he? And he grew up at your club for ten years. Yeah, so I mean, just go back to you said it once in a, one of those workshops I attended, the ready position is your preparation. I just said Don't that once. Again. I just said that once. <laughs> to me. <laughs> I only heard it once. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't take the quiz. No, no. Such a good listener, Steve. Yeah. The ready position is the preparation. So Dennis's development you know, whether you know, it, it's, it stemmed from that, you know, ready position, unit turn, shoulder turn. He had that from moment go. Mm-hmm. That's what he had, right? So it wasn't as if, you know, he evolved. He didn't evolve. He had that for the first, you know, eight to 10 years of his life. The, the night he won, um, he beat uh, Nadal. Mm-hmm. The match point, he's in a tiebreaker, and the, he played a basic pattern that he must have trained, I don't know, how many hours at the club, right? Cross-court, cross-court, short ball move in. Basic pattern, and that's what he did. You know, we, that's all he did on match point. And I was just, yeah, he, he did that when he was six years old. Mm-hmm. So my point is, is that his tennis is, you know, yeah, certainly he's, he's uh, a marquee player when it comes to pro tennis today. But his tennis began with great base information. He he didn't even pick up a racket until he had. So he didn't hit a ball until he had great base information. He didn't compete without great base information. Well, he had that before and, he and went we, on the court. And when people base. watch him today, one of our. Uh, Associates, somebody I trained to teach tennis, Mike Larshide, 
I'm sure our listeners have heard it, print cursive autograph. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, we agree this is the shape of the letter A, this is the sound. And then you, okay, then cursive, you know, and Michael Archer makes a really good point. So if someone is watching Nadal, he signs his name with a his surname with an N. And when you look at someone's signature, you can't tell it's an N necessarily, unless you saw it, you know, you just know it's an N. Okay. Okay. That, that's an N. Then you can kind of tell. So I think that's where when people, um, I mean, he's gone down the road so far in, in the competitive side. Um, they, again, most people, they don't really have the eye to see, you know, when you talk about grips, for example, I mean, in our country, um, someone told me the other day, we have four players in the top hundred on the men's side. And one is John Isner, great guy, great serve, but he plays one up one back doubles when he does play. He's, he's improved, but the mechanics he has on the backhand volley. I mean, if you look at TFO's backhand volley, you look at Taylor Fritz's backhand volley, but I can remember being on a conference call with Tessa that's something that she struggled with, correct? Is that um, you've told me that if we went to her warehouse, we would see her, you know, teaching great base tennis to little kids. But Dennis uh, comes oh, in. Sure. And Dennis comes in, and you know, he they, he she didn't buy into uh, you know certain things that you taught, correct? Yeah. So it it it, it all comes back to her experience. I mean, you know. She wanted to, she wanted to volley over the continental grip strong on the forehand side. Um, that's what Dennis was going to do. She was in charge of Dennis, right? So that's how Dennis was going to do it. No matter what I said, no matter how I presented it, no matter who I showed, <laughs> you know, documented the shape of her, you know, his swing, it became a problem. And you know, I, I, it's funny though because I, I say it this way. Tessa had the ability to listen well. And if you watch her teach tennis today to young kids, she's doing what we did, what we, we trained her to do, what we showed her to do, right? If you actually look at, you know, Dennis' evolution on his backhand, say, for example, you know, Moran noticed it better than I did. He says, yeah, he's got the racket on edge better. He's making a better shoulder to the racket. The racket is closing better. It's still open slightly, mm-hmm. but it's better. Now, and I'm saying Tessa's been involved with that kid's tennis over COVID since the shutdown more than anybody else. And it's through shutdown. So it's things like that. I can see, Iran can see, you can see. Obviously, the, the average the average person who's not paying attention or not understanding might have a difficulty seeing, but it's there. So, you know, I can say publicly that I've, no doubt in my mind that, that her understanding of short production is exactly what we would review day in, day out. And, you know, Dennis was in line like everybody else, Shadow Swinging. When we had a group of kids, Shadow Swinging, he was doing it too, you know. And so, you know, it, it, it really, it really it stems from the same place in, in terms of where, where um, I, I, as a coach over the years, you know, developed a lot of confidence you know, with the information that, that, that I've evolved with and, and, and learned through. And I think Tessa's done the same thing. She's developed a lot of confidence. And so there's no doubt in my mind that, you know, her ability to go in the player's box and coach Dennis and 
said that. Like, she's got confidence in what she's doing. I think it comes from the great base information she received. With, um, you know, no, I think I know. With, with the forehand volley, you know, the credibility, it's all who says it, you know, where you start speaking in math. I can remember when Braden was on TV with Cliff Drysdale and, you know, Cliff Drysdale, all these years later, is still on TV and, you know, he's certainly uh, well-received and does many, many things well. But um, I just know that there's a lot of things that uh, he did not grasp. Like, say, the continental grip, where do you get the 45 degrees? Spin the racket eight times, 360 divided by eight. But Jose yeah. Garris, if you, if in this country, um, he was, you know, still is connected with USTA, but he was a lead coach for a long time. He was six in the world, I believe. And he says it's almost a continental. Or if you think of Charlie Hollis, who coached uh, Laver, and he called it an Australian grip. Um, I hope David Squire listens to this. I had to hit him over the head as Australian. And he goes, hey, mate, I'm not teaching. It's, I'm not teaching anything but the continental grip. But I said, well, you know, let me hit you over the head, knucklehead, because they used to call it the Australian grip. Mm-hmm. And if they just knew that little little adjustment. Um, I think most players don't know they're, they think it's a continental grip, but it's not quite a continental grip. Exactly. I, I mean, um, I've listened to all my students, and you learn from your students. Uh, Chad Berryhill he used to tell people, we are in the vast minority. <laughs> but sometimes the minority is correct. Yeah. Um, with yeah. um, Bob Brett. And but, I, you know what I mean? I, ahead, so come back, yeah. come back to what you said. It's, it's kind of who says it. But it's, there's also the willingness to say it. And I, I remember, you know, Daniel Nesta, he's not a friend of mine, but, you know, we've had uh, some long, personal, drawn-out conversations. And, and one of the things came back to his his development over time. And I remember Harry Fritz uh, came to me one time. He says, I'm going to be working with Daniel Nesta. They want me to help him out with his serve. Harry Fritz poses this question to me. What do you see? So I remember watching Nesta play many, many times. And he'd go to letter T, get up to letter Y, and he'd literally spin the racket in his hand, you know, in a circular fashion, and re-grip it, and then serve. I said, well, you might want to take care of that. There's a basic comment. That's one. Nesta, you know, here's that from Harry. Done. Right? He says Then there's another situation where Ness is at the club. And I'm having the same conversation with Danny. Danny, remember when you used to have your right hand at the top end of your your throat, right? And then when you turn for the backhand return, just to slide down. And I said, at that point, the racket face was reset slightly open, right? Which made it problematic for you to calculate off that side. And there was a time when he was training with Myron, and I don't know if it was a short-term uh, a relationship or what. And Myron says to me, what do you see? And I said to Dester, I said to Myron, his right hand slides down, resets and opens at the bottom of the swing. Myron says to me, mm, I don't know if we can discuss that right now, Richard. It's okay, no problem. I left the court. I got upstairs to my office. And the club has this walkway looking over the course they were training on. So I'm heading from my office over to the administration side. And I look down, I see Meyer trying to explain this <laughs> slide in right hand. So my point is, 
it's it's you know it's the gumption to say it gets it there. Now, I say the same thing to Nesta. On Dennis's volley, his grip is too far over the racket face is open, right? You volley with a composite grip. You flatten out that face. You have that racket string, the strings going towards the target for a longer period of time. Why don't you just tell the kid that? For sure, that's going to make a difference and possibly put in a position to win a grand slam. You didn't do it. Yeah, well, you, you didn't do it. What you said about Pierre, right. Pierre Lamar's talking to players. I, I've been with people I've trained to teach tennis, and we're talking to people that are on the tour. And I remember Brandon Flanagan saying one time, he goes, Steve, do you realize all those guys were listening to you? I said, yeah. What, what are you surprised at? And he goes, I'm just surprised. You know, you're coaching developmental junior tennis, and these guys are on the ATP circuit. I said, they don't know. <laughs> Andy, what's the Braden line? They don't know. They, they don't, don't know. know. They don't know. Yeah. They don't say what they do or do what they say. Yeah, they don't. Top players don't say what they do and they don't do what they say. The you know, of, with world team tennis, they use young juniors, they use college players, anything to really help promote the game, get people in the seats. And young uh, Taylor Fritz, he's 17 or 18 years old. He's serving like 130. And Raven Claussen, just like when through Myron Grunberg, Tennis Canada was talking to you about uh, teaching, teaching, teaching them how to teach young kids, is the uh, the Fritz family, they wanted to hire, they talked to Raven, you know, Raven was still, um, still is, uh, he won a tournament a couple of weeks ago. Um, they asked him to coach um, Taylor Fritz. And I said, Raven, you blew that. I mean, you don't have to sign up and be their full-time travel coach. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, and as great as he is, I mean, he, he sets up points well with the serve and his return, he starts the points off well, but, um, and again, it's not to beat him up or just like a TFO, but um, it's it's mathematical. I mean, the, the grip determines the angular racket face, angular racket face determines the angular racket path. Um, the power of video, uh, I know, you know, we've done a lot of work together with video. Um, I remember uh, Myron Grunberg and Frankie Densvik ended up having so many different coaches. But at one time they were at your place and, and Grunberg was traveling and coaching Danzevic. And you put a tape in and said, because Myron asked you to help out. And you put a tape in and said, Frankie, why don't you watch this tape? I think you should hit the ball like this kid. And it was Frank, it was Danzevic watching the tape of himself. Um, but I think that's one big problem, whether it's a kid going from junior to college, um, if they go from junior to working with a federation, is a lot of times they just don't stay with the core information that got them to where they were or where yeah. they are. That's what I was going to say Right. It's surprising, Richard. But also, though, you, so I was just going to say it's surprising come back to, that so. like te- someone like Tessa, you know, spending so much time around you and, and getting the great base, getting the information, it's surprising that she doesn't circle back, as Steve would say, and talk to you and just, you know, get some advice or. Yeah, it's, re- yeah, it's relationship based. I mean, yeah. you've, you've, you've got to understand that, you know, I mean, one thing I think tennis is lacking, and, and I really mean this, is confrontation at the highest level. Like, I mean, real confrontation. You know, there's one thing to, you know, go in a room and you know, have polite conversation about system. There's another thing to go into a room and go, you know what? I checked your system out, and here's what I'm, here's the map behind what I think you're doing. 
Richard, right? don't swear so, because <laughs> I'm, I'll have to do editing. I know you want to. You, you're doing an excellent job, by the way. Actually, I all commend you. All, Can all Canadians are bilingual. They speak English and profanity. Yeah, just you're doing great. So, so, but with that though, I give, I give, I say this: is that you know, confrontation, and it doesn't always end well. But Tessa was confrontational. She still is. Mm. Like she, she is one of those people that will take on a fight anyone at any time. Yeah. Now, obviously, you know, she's smart enough to know when to sort of keep her mouth shut because she, she's gotten as far as she has with her son. But I, I say this is that it, it takes a personality to be confrontational to get to the next level. It really does. And, and I think, you know, if you were to, if you were to garner sort of a look at, at the, the, the plays that have come through our, come through Canadian tennis, and the question is, East European, you know, they come from East European parents. And mm-hmm. the East European parents have moved to this country to have a better life, not a difficult life, mm. a better life. But they appreciate opportunity, right? And, it's, and as soon as they, 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 they garner that, that, that momentum with the opportunity they've been given, they don't stop whatever they appreciate opportunity and you know all these Europeans don't act the same I mean if, if you really look at and I, I don't want to you might want to bleep this out but a Romanian culture I think collectively they're more of a, a, a clannish type group of people they really are a together happy people Romanians they help one another tremendously Russians <laughs> yeah, I know we're not supposed to categorize people, but it, 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 I've been to so many Canadian ter- junior tournaments, and the kids from Quebec, for example, and I think a lot of it's it's the language. But the, the I always thought when I was at Canadian junior tournaments that the kids from Quebec, they were together. That was a team that was different. Where the American kid, or I thought the English Canadian kid from all the other provinces, it was just so individualistic. There was like no team concept. But the big thing with no. families is the family's the team. I mean, it's uh, it's amazing. Yeah, I was just telling a group of people the other day, it's not a golden day. Like um, on my list of people with the most information, you know, the late Vic Braden, I would put one. I'd put Bill Jacobson too. I mean, just who has the most information, most ideas and insights. And like Vic, for example, he was not confrontational. Like I think my, I mean, I think my lucky star is, you know, from a coaching standpoint, that I was not born into tennis. You know, I, I grew up in an ice hockey family and that's confrontational. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, I think one thing about tennis that's so sad is that, um, you know, th- there's young coaches that start teaching right away that, and they, they don't, there's no way that they're, you know, there's, the consumer doesn't have consumer knowledge. The coach doesn't have product knowledge. The, the parent wants to hire the glorified sparring partner because they can hit the ball. Um, let me uh, say this is a video story. Uh, Bob Brett from Australia, you could touch upon. I know he's, no, he's not there anymore, but he came in with the credibility of having coached uh, Ivanisevic and Becker, and that helped Michael Downey raise money. Um, but uh, here's a story of confrontation. So Richard Listers, he calls me up, and I say, yeah, okay, okay, Richard, I'll do it. And I FedEx video of a young Dylan Bernarczyk 
we became number one, the tens, the twelves, maybe the fourteens, and you know they they got off track and didn't you know didn't stay with the theory or the philosophy. Be brilliant with basics, but you know I had a, had him hitting two handed forehands. So there was Bob Brett was going to come to your club, and you had a kid who was really good who had been recruited. I kind of cherry picked. In other words, okay, here here's a cherry from your club and. And this young kid, you had him hit a two-handed forehand. I know he might have been nine years old. And uh, right. I coached you on that, Richard, and he didn't follow my directions. I said, just let him talk. Let him say what he tells you. He's going to say, you know, no one hits a two-handed forehand. This is what the kid needs to do. And then play the video. But uh, you, the two clouds met, and, you know, you guys started having a few words. And he he left the building, and he never saw the video. So I had to dig through the files and... <laughs> Take it to the, we take it to the shop and send it to your FedEx because he was, that was his golden boy at one time. He's, you know, he worked one-on-one, all sorts of reps and he's hitting ball after ball with Bernard check. And, but Brett didn't know that he had hit a two-handed forehand for a long time. And that, that helps kids uh, shorten the swing, keep the racket up high with the strength of both hands, not have an Hawaiian, like beyond Western grip. But uh, that was confrontational, correct, Richard? Right. So that was actually the second confrontation. That wasn't the first. That was the second. <laughs> so you've got to appreciate <laughs> that, you know, I, you know, like Pierre Lamarche, I keep my house pretty, that's my house. So <laughs> Mr. Mr. Brett came to my house. And Rich Middle Country Club, yeah, beautiful place, the, all those indoor courts, Rich play Middle courts. <laughs> right. And was in the process of telling me, you know, this young boy needed to continue doing what I'm telling him to do. And I said, Mr. Brett, Bob, I called him Bob. Mm-hmm. I said, uh, I said, it swings too long. He said, no, whatever like, what do you mean it swings too long? <laughs> I said, well, if you look at the racket, it goes in from the ready position, went slightly up above his head. By the time he made a turn, the racket was slightly open above his head. To correct that, it goes three, four feet behind it three, four feet this way. And I explain it to him in an orderly fashion. He says, I don't understand what you're saying. So I said, okay, let's film it. He stops me. He says, I've never filmed a player in my life. <laughs> right? We didn't even get the filming done. <laughs> now, let's stop right there in that He's trying to fill the wrong role with this player's development. If you're telling me about Ivan Nisovich, and Brock will tell you, I've taken more plays into the top five than anybody else. He, that's his claim to fame. He will tell people that. I've done more work getting more plays into the top five than anybody else. They were so, ranked six and then they went to five. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm, I'm, no, but the truth is, let's say that's the truth, and I, and I take that. It's not the same as a nine-year-old on the forehand side with the swing goes above his head, around his back, <laughs> and you're telling me, let him loosen up. I'm like, no. <laughs> and that's where the confrontation has to take place. Yeah. Now, did I win that? No. Did the kid lose? Yes. Right. So do I have to have better approaches and processes in, that, in order to you know, win those situations over? Yes. But in principle, no, I wasn't wrong. One thing with Bob Brett, Bob Brett, uh, you know, 
disciple Harry Hopman, you know, lunch bucket. He's going to show up, hit lots and lots of balls. He actually, you know, in our library, we have so much film about Brett. He demonstrates really well. Mm. Uh, Take Marita, he spent a year and a half with us really learning English. Um, and that was a connection with Hubert Crash, who you mentioned earlier. Hubert was teaching in Japan, and I know you were over there. I was over there. And but Take, um, he's translated for many, many people because when there's a workshop, you know, here's a guy, who, a bright guy, went to Rice. He played at Rice when they were a top 10 team in the country. So he's got a tennis background. He's a tennis academy. But he's he's worked as a translator. And what, you know, he he's trans- translated for some people where he goes, I translated for this guy for two two years ago, and now he's teaching the tennis. Now he's teaching the tennis, or the forehand differently. But um, with, uh, but tell us about, um, you know, say someone. The backstory is really interesting. Like say Rayonich, he he went to Montreal for a year. Like the what's what's the name of the place in Washington D.C. with Ray Benton College Park, College Park. So they 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 bill it, or in other words, you stay with a family which I think is very good versus staying in the dorm. Uh, but then he went to Spain um, the second year. Um, you know, the, the, what, you know, Miran touched upon what Felix's story is or what Dennis's story is. Um, but I, I really think the, the backstories are, you know, re- really interesting. But I think that's where, um, you know, with Tennis Canada, their success, I mean, Hungry Dog Hunts Best, The Immigrants, um, but I, I think that a lot of people on the outside think it's because there's a Canadian method that all the coaches are working together. And, um, but that's really not true. Correct. Well, let me say this, there is a method in the certification. So for example, and I'm not trying to compartmentalize it where I can. So the certification is a multi-tiered system, right? So I've audited uh, the one, two, I've certified at the three, and right now at the highest level, I've certified at four. There's a fifth, which I think they just give it as a, an honorarium or something like that. But the one, two, there's uh, discussion about you know, developing grooves, managing grooves, and that kind of thing. But there's no real information on technique. I think Moran touched upon that. But in the three, when Louis was doing it, there was a focus on particular skills. And one was, and let's just use a phrase, developing the big forehand. Okay? That was the thing. Right? So now come back to Rayonich. Although Casey never certified, he watched enough. And if you look at Rayonich's game, it was a serve and his forehand, particularly as a junior where he could just take control. He's a big boy. He could take control. But in terms of a system, no, there's no system. But in terms of sometimes you pick on themes and they certify with those themes, mm-hmm. yes, there is that. Mm-hmm. Right? So right now, but you know, if you look at the numbers, and I think I have it here somewhere, there are over 3,400 certified club professionals and coaches in the club industry across Canada. 3,400. Now, you take out tennis population, you multiply that out. I bet that's like a 1 to 10 certified coach to the tennis population. 
I really believe that. So it, it's it's not it's not where um, you talk, talk about the the, uh, the car trunk pro you know, driving up to a gated community, pulling out his bucket his bucket of balls and going to work. For for coaches to work in this country, not being certified makes it more difficult to get into these clubs where a lot of these clubs have signed on to only hiring certified coaches. Mm. They receive um, some sort of uh, insurance benefit for these coaches. That's why they hire them. They receive um, additional funding with resources. That's why they hire them. So there's a reason to hire these coaches um, in addition to, you know, the guides of professional training, but there's no technical system. Mm. You know, you, you would, you would, there was a, I believe, you should call it PATH, P-A-S, uh, PATH, Angle and Swing, I believe it was. And, you know, sorry if I'm wrong. And you mean an acronym P- for PATH? Pass, yeah, P-A-S. Yeah. yeah. Path. Pass, okay. Angle, yeah, meaning the, the, the angle of the racket path and speed, I might, I think it might have been. Anyway, that was an acronym they used, but my point is, is that that's as, that's as much as you could, you could get out of the, the technical side. Now, they had um, resources for periodization. They had resources for psychological training. They had resources for fitness and strength training, right? But in, in terms of there being, you know, a one-on-one on stroke production, the two-on-one on stroke, but there was never that, never. And, you know, and I think most federations would have to admit to that too, that there is no structure when it comes to, you know, forehands and backhands. Yeah. There is no real understanding as to how to implement that. In this country, I'm a member. You know, I mean, I go ahead. I tell me, Ryan. I said, Ryan, you know, we really think about it. You know, the ready position is your preparation. We can build a program just around the ready position in terms of we identify that. Okay, move number two, move number three, move number four. Yeah, Dennis Vandermeer. You know, once we get kids in the yeah, in relationship with strokes, in relationship with spins. Um, you know, look at yeah. jo- look at Djokovic. It looks like he's totally yeah. in, into the ready position. But I think in certification with Canada, I remember you flying down to Tampa, going to our library, taking film of Sampras when he was a little kid. And uh, I mean, you got on an airplane and came down just to, you know, where we, together we prepared for, uh, it was more like grad school. I mean, you had gone to a course, you know, level one, level two, three, four. Um, and that's just not really the case. I, I know now, um, uh, Paul Rotert has been hired Funny back. Why did you say that? Actually, I'll, I'll bring a, yeah, yeah. I'll bring a story into that as well. Go Can ahead. I finish? Yeah. Well, I was just say Paul no, Rotert. No, part of my. You go, go, go. Your turn. You sure? You want me to go? You're gonna go. <laughs> uh, I'll go. You pa- go. Paul, Paul, Paul <laughs> Rotert. Um, you know, his his father was in charge of the Dutch uh, Davis Cup team, and he has a PhD in biomechanics. Uh, he was kind of a gopher, uh, like I was kind of a gopher for Vic Braden back in the day. He's just been hired back by the USTA. Now, so since he left, um, now the USTA is accrediting the PTR and the USPTA, but we're going to 
talked to Rob Krychek uh, in our next podcast, father of Austin Krychek. And that's another whole story. Coming back to, you mentioned Craig Tiley. Um, Rob Krychek read where Craig Tiley said, when he first started Tennis Australia, it's going to take me 10 years to have a network of coaches. And Rob said, you know, he contacted Paul Rodert. Um, and there was just many connections at that time. He was using uh, Guy Weinhold's daughter for uh, demonstrations, uh, illustrations, photos in a, in a in a book he was working on. But so he's back. But now it's flip flopped. Where now the USTA is in charge of the PTR. They're they're accrediting, they're approving and accrediting the PTR and USTA. So you know that's just something where the PTR and the USTA. I think it sums up America, where individualistic society is that those governing bodies of tennis teachers have never been under the same umbrella. But I do know this, that uh, um, your involvement with Tennis Canada has been so much deeper than from a certification standpoint than it is with uh, American pros with a PTR and use PTA. But tell us your story. Well, I think it's important. I mean, yeah, I, no, I think it's important. I mean, that's I mean, the story is that, you know, you said it when I sit in classroom at Tyler Junior College, yeah. it's important to know um, the certification process. It's important to be part of it, not be part of it. So I fall, always followed that guidance. When I came to Canada, I said, okay, I'll, I'll do it. And I actually certified at level three twice. One was under two coaches, uh, Harry Greenan and Robert Bettel. That was the first time I did it. Second time I ordered it was through Lou Kaye. So I went back and I recertified, not having to do a test, but certainly do the time. But once I did that, then I could move on to my level four. And you had to pick on the level four a theme by which you were going to train over uh, four months. You had to periodize what you would do. <laughs> and I picked tabletop. That's all I did, tabletop. And Louis goes, what's tabletop? <laughs> That's where you swing level, as if you're swinging across the top of the table. He goes, what are you going to do? I said, I'll show you what I'll do. So I went through it, and that's when I came down. I picked up that video of Pete Sampras, because in one of the lectures, he takes a, a film of Pete Sampras. Louis does. Louis goes, and he sees Pete Sampras moving through the vault, right? And he says to the class, didn't flinch. This is the modern way of playing a volley. You're moving through it now. This is what we're seeing on the pro tour. And Myron's sitting in the class. I put my hand up. And that's why I was a little facetious and a little bit rude. Confrontational. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> I go, I go, uh, Louis, tennis for the future, Vic Braden. Please preview the vault like that. <laughs> Uh, I think that book was written in the 70s. <laughs> 77. There you go. Huh? 1977. Yeah. So, Louis, by back, good for Vic Braden. I said, no, stop, Louis. You're trying to present something here that you should give credit for here, right? Mm -hmm. Vic said it. You're identifying it. Give credit where credit's due. And this is in front of everybody. So anyway, we come back to tabletop, and my my story to tabletop and that video of Pete Sampras is Pete Sampras 
it's three shots in that video sequence and you had it you did it where it was like repeat 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 mm-hmm. Pete Sampras ran through cracked the volley on the approach shot on the forehand side cracked the forehand volley cracked the backhand volley on all three shots he was moving and he yeah. was nine years old moved through the approach shot as well. I mean well he had a two-handed yeah. backhand volley you have a better chance of hitting you have a better chance of learning a one-handed backhand volley by hitting two-handed backhand volley and the argument's pretty clear because yeah. pe- people don't even go to the net anymore. Yeah, you know they've got the wrong yeah. grip, their elbows so, collapse, they're hacking at it like a lumberjack. Right. So, but the, the that, tabletop that really it teaches old. it teaches framework too. It's like, and I think that's one of the un- unfortunate things. I know Louis Caillet's you know given a lot of uh, praise for what he's doing with doubles now with the uh, British Tennis Federation, um, but with we uh, have to have a a fellow Canadian, Canadian Jim Rogers, who also uh, I met through the program in Tyler, Texas, and that'll keep Andy up all night because he's he can't say one sentence without the F word. Yeah, we're not doing it. So I, Jim was very quick story. So Jim's Jim's in Germany, and he's you know he's you know he has a house he he's with it, that he owns with a bank, and he's he owns his own tennis business. I mean, he's doing really well, and he's just dying to go back to Canada, and he goes back to. Saskatchewan. I go, Jimmy, tennis in Canada is city fight. It's not country fight. You're not going to find a lot of tennis in Saskatchewan. So he, uh, it's pretty much like this. He's in Saskatoon. He gets on an airplane. I don't know if he flies to Winnipeg, flies to Calgary, rents a car, checks into a hotel. Poor Louie is, he's playing a tape. It's Nick Terry, like the sonic serve. Rogers is sitting there. He raises his hand and he's, He's confrontational. He goes, how much longer are you going to play that tape? <laughs> and, and, you know, Louis is so polite. And I think that's typical of tennis. It's not confrontational. Everybody's edifying each other. And so um, he goes, why do you ask? He goes, well, I got on an airplane in Saskatoon. I flew to Calgary. Now I'm to Winnipeg. And now I'm here in Calgary. I rented a car. I checked in the hotel. I One, I already own that tape. And two, it's, it's $29. <laughs> And three, he's already said seven things that are wrong. <laughs> and so that's where uh, fact-based instruction. Um, you know, when Braden passed away, it was almost, it was, I was actually over six years ago. There's so many people that wrote so many nice things, but there's people that, that they don't think his work is relevant. I mean, the tennis court is still 19.1 degrees wide. I mean, there's just math. If you don't know it, you don't know it. And and I, I think that comes yeah, back to that, that thought earlier is that, are you a producer? Now, a lot of times, you know, people are parasites and they're just, they're just living off people can already play and they're, they're romancing the player. Teaching is information transfer and coaching is a relationship. And I, again, like the super coaches, I, I definitely appreciate the fact that they're, they're confidants and they're mentors, but the, you know, Joe tennis public, they, it's like if they were just to listen to Federer, uh, the young German Zverev, mm-hmm. the younger of the two, he, um, he hires Lendl. And everybody's like, well, the buzz, what's Lendl going to do for him? And Federer goes, well, you know, I don't know, Ivan. I'm sure Ivan can help him out, but he's already number three in the world. And, you know, so it's really interesting how uh, tennis has a tendency going circles. Yep. But you mentioned Rob, well, uh, Rob yeah. Bettenauer, he, that when you, way back when in the late eighties, when, you know, you at least got me in the room where actually it was not a room. It was just, uh, and not too long ago, I mean, with uh, you and a few others uh, pushed and pushed and pushed. I said, it's not going to happen. But you guys wanted me to uh, 
talked to Bob Brett because they're setting up a program out in um, um, in Vancouver. And but yeah, Bettenauer was hired for that. And um, I mean, it's really interesting with the internet. You, I mean, I listened to him uh, uh, TED talk on physical activity, which uh, I mean, there's a, there, in our country, uh, there's one state where you only have to take one PE class and you could take it online. <laughs> so, you know, he's, he's uh, done, he did so much in tennis, but uh, it, it's interesting, uh, you know, when it comes down to the, the federations um, or, or better yet, it's just like when you mentioned Louis saying, well, good for Vic Braden. I mentioned in one of our podcasts, uh, Dr. Jack Roppel, Dr. Mark Kovacs. I mean, they're, you know, they're both highly educated and, 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 you know, are great presenters and this is what they do. But, you know, we, can we just agree that the tennis court's a rectangle and then go forward? There's certain things like. Not going to change. Um, you know, this is how you stand when you shoot a foul shot, you know, in, in basketball. And, you know, you, see, well, the sim- you yeah. see the similarities when people throwing a basketball, but people can't see it in tennis. They can't yeah, see the so, fundamentals. Yeah. And, and that's the thing, Steve. I mean, so one of the issues that we had as a club is that we weren't, you know, and we call it a TDC, Tennis, tennis Development Center, the Tennis Canada, but we were still you know, doing our fair share of developing place for national level uh, events. And so Larry Jurovich, who was at the time with Tennis Canada, and he has his own facility out now in British Columbia, was um, part of the group that would circulate with clubs and you know, try and assist with their program in terms of, you know, content and information. So he comes to my club, and I think at the time I was building a house. I might have told you the story, but when I was building a house, before I poured my foundation, I had to have my forms inspected for the foundation. The analogy I used with Larry, I said, Larry, because you talk about foundation, foundation. I said, Larry, before you can talk about foundation, you've got to talk about form. You cannot build a house until your forms are inspected. Mm. You cannot. You're not permitted. You can't even put the foundation in. So form before foundation. Larry buys back. Yeah, but it's it's function for form. And I go, okay, function for form. I said, tell me the dimensions of the court. This is Larry Jerovich working for Tennis Canada. He gives me the function, the form, the the dimensions on the width and the length. I said, now from the center, what's the angle from the center to the other side, opposite sideline? Didn't know it. What's the angle from the sideline corner to the opposite diagonally? Didn't know it. I said, therein lies the problem. I said, the, the, the function that you're talking about is the core. How does a player function on the core, right? Therefore, what is his form to to, to, to honor that function? Mm-hmm. It, it, and it, it goes back and forth like that all the time. But I think it's important for coaches to appreciate when 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 you get in those situations, yeah, you can get stumped. You know, I almost got stumped. Yeah, function, you know, maybe he's right. But at the end of the day, no, no. Let's deal in the truth. Let's deal in the real math. And the real math is 
no matter who you are, you still got to play within the, the context of this, as you call it, the rectangle. Yeah. And that's and that's the that's the and that's the conversation, and the confrontation needs to be had day in day out, not just coaches against coaches, but parents and uh, play, coaches and parents, because we get the same thing. Yeah, Miranda the other day gave a, a, a the same thing a review, and a parent comes with multi segmental plan, and Miranda, like, you know, your daughter has. You know, a number of issues, <laughs> issues. establishing a hidden zone. <laughs> you know, establishing a hidden zone. Can we agree on that? Right. But, know, but, but again, people up. people don't understand the term hitting zone. It's the width of your shoulders, basically, or 75 milliseconds. So you have a tracking motion where you play it now, now, now. And, you know, so many kids, they you ask, you ask a kid, were you early or late? And they, it's amazing. I was late. Now I know you were early. I mean, you're just pulling your forehand, your your arm right across your body horizontally. But one thing about, you yeah. know, I mentioned Balateri is that I have great respect for Nick, but, you know, Nick got into Hall of Fame based on the environment he built. And, and you know, he's a, certainly a coach. But when it comes down to, uh, you know, Vic got in the Hall of Fame based on education. But Nick Balateri himself, I've heard him say it, that, you know, Vic Braden's forgot more about tennis than I know. It just comes down to, you know, Okay, grip. Did you, I mean, can you imagine? I know you you play golf. Your daughter mentioned had a scholarship to play in the U.S. Golfers, I grew up with golfers. I mean, they don't want to hit the ball in the water. They don't want to hit the ball in the woods. <laughs> but also their scoring system, you know, on the, I mean, I used to caddy and it was so, so difficult to listen. I mean, in my, in my household, on the, on the third shot, on the, on the third hole on the fifth shot. On the fifth wall, on the third shot, That's you know, and if they, happened. even if they shoot a hundred, they could go back because they can break it down by 18 holes. And this is what I did on the 11th tee. And it's like, okay. Um, but, you know, tennis players, they can hit a hundred balls in a 12 and under rally. But uh, yeah, two levels of ignorance. Uh, people don't know and they don't know. Um, I, I read where, uh, maybe I mispronounced your name, Kelly Mur- Muretz, Muretz. She was the CEO in between. Um, when Michael Downey went from Canada, Tennis Canada, the, to the British uh, Federation yeah. and back. Miramet. What is it again? Yeah. Miramets. But she, she was uh, quoted as saying, you know, yeah, she yeah. was going to, it's queer, you know, she, her, you know, and I think, uh, you know, we've talked about it like with Carl Hale and PTR president, you know, what's his legacy? You know, what are you going to do when you're the president? So what did you do when you were the CEO? Or, and her theme was going to be increased participation, which I think is so huge. But when she was asked about player development, she said, I'm not going to touch it. She goes, I'm going to learn about it, but I'm not going to touch it because it's not broken. But I do think because you have had in Canada so many successful players here as of late that uh, the perception is that, you know, you're as a, as a, con- as a country, you're systematic and, um, and it's, and it's working. It is working, but I think it's more, um, you know, so many factors. Well, uh, I, the hungry dog. Yeah, I, I do think. Well, no, but I do think though that the, 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 the players that have had success, you know, if whether or not, I mean, I, I don't know Felix's father's first name, but the way he hits the ball, you know, he has some understanding. Dennis certainly does. Bianca certainly does. Nesta certainly does. I mean, they have an understanding of stroke production, whether it's innate or whether it was taught to them, but they do. And so where, um, 
And it's a small country, and it's a small group of tennis players. So, you know, success will breed success in those environments because it's so close together. And, you know, I mean, I, you know, I used the word Siamese twin the other day. It's, it, you get more kids imitating the better players mm-hmm. because you see them more often. Mm-hmm. You know, you just you just see it. And that's and that I and that's I think the coaches also imitate one another to some degree. Um, yeah, no, I, the, the, I, you, you know. have to have to. It should be you have to imitate before you innovate. I'd like to tell people that right. what what I present, you know, five percent of it's original. <laughs> we had one of the USTA um, coaches out here today, and we were putting him through our assessment. You know, our tiebreaker test is original. You know, it's like we you, you started talking about. Uh, and we first started this conversation, Craig Tiley and Dave Anderson, you know, they were basically your age. I'm like 10 years older. And, um, but you were impressed by, by their skill set when you met them. And, um, I think that's one thing in tennis is that with kids on YouTube, uh, Peter Burwatch, who I mentioned, he used to say that in the countries where kids have seen less tennis, it's actually easier to teach them because they really get in trouble when they think they're going to start in, in, imitating the pros. What about, uh, you know, you've been in Toronto 34 years. I mean, you could talk about the city, the province, the country. Um, if if you were the commissioner of tennis, or better yet, the CEO of Tennis Canada, I mean, if you were to be, which, I, I mean, it should happen. I mean, you should be an advisor to uh, Michael Downing. I'm very confident that I should be an advisor to uh, the new CEO of uh, the USTA. I mean, do you really want to know the history of tennis teaching? Do you want to know the nuts and bolts? I mean, these great tennis teachers that went before us. I mean, do, do you have, does he have a historian in his corner? Uh, but, it, you know, what would you say are three things that could really improve uh, tennis in uh, Canada? Hmm. I mean, okay, so something simple. Um, get coaches to... A hand out grip stickers and learn the grip system. Done. Number one. That'd be the number one thing. Number two. That's difficult. But the, on a bigger picture, you mentioned college coaching. I mean, college tennis. I think that, and this is a discussion I had with uh, I was in this program, the National Coaches Institute. So they, this is pre. Nine and uh, 2012 Olympics. Um, and all these coaches were going through this program to get co- get certified to level four so they could go to the Olympics. Because you, I think the IOC demanded you had to be a minimum level four in your country, whatever that represented. And <clears throat> so you had all these different coaches, different minds coming through. And I remember being so impressed with track and field guys because I remember going to a, uh, a conference there's predominantly track and field and I'd never in my life and people talk about this you know um, uh, but, um, what's the word I apologize um, but these these Track and field coaches would sit and they were deliberating over the, the first 10 meters of a race. And it went on all day. Mm-hmm. Coming out of the block in the first 10 meters, 
of the race. Yeah, no, I was just telling right? someone the other day, uh, Vince Lombardi's uh, famous, they called it the, I think, the the power sweep. And there was a coaching conference where a guy took 90 minutes to explain one play. <laughs> um, but details, grips, all, details. Yeah, but then, Go ahead. Right. So, the, so I, I, where I, I mean, love of the craft, respect for the craft, I think that's, that's a big one. But I think when it comes to college coaching, college uh, tennis the number one thing we can do in our country is change the rules by which college football is played right now we're playing on the CFL rules if we actually change the NFL rules we could integrate with American colleges and get greater access to American sports and American um, hmm. athletic systems NCAA systems it's the number one thing I think I would change if I had to. Oh, then if that so was changed, it, it, it would sounds be, weird. No, but the byproduct of that, I could see the the method to the madness in saying that because um, then that would because you know football rules. I mean, that's a big problem with the pandemic. Is you know I think there needs to be so many discussions on how can college tennis survive without the money from college football, right? Um. Well, yeah, I, I believe that that's going to be the problem. But I also think, though, that that it's like golf. I don't know why women's golf has the budget it does. And I, forgive me, everyone. I don't mean that in that women shouldn't have money. But in, in terms of the number of athletes available to play women's golf, it's nowhere near the demand, right? The demand of, of, of NCAA college space is far greater than the supply. But a lot of these colleges provide a budget, whether it's coaching, travel, whatever it is, right? And I doesn't, I don't get it. But you colleges want those sports where you, you access those circles. Tennis is one of them. Golf is another one. You know, I mean, there's some schools you know, that have equestrian. As, as part of their, their, their uh, college program for sports. And if you actually look at the numbers in, in what goes into a question, it's ridiculous. I mean, you know, somebody going to play polo, he doesn't go with one horse, he goes with a team of horses. You know, it's just that kind of numbers. But you know, when it comes right down to it, tennis will survive because it's one of those sports that everybody um, wants access to, whether it's corporately or mm. you know, socially it's just one of those sports i really believe that well, one thing uh, but i think one, though for, for, go ahead i believe i believe canadian tennis needs a shot in the arm because it, it, it needs it, it you, you talk about indoor court time there's just not enough court time to produce you know a, a, a slew of really good players i'm not even talking about you know Guys didn't crack the top hundred. I'm talking about the 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 young player that's going to live for three four years as a journeyman playing you know, ITF and challenges. I think it's so important for for tennis to progress is that number has to increase a lot. Otherwise, Tennis Canada will always have to fund um, players who want to play pro tennis, and it's 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 not a forever thing. It's it's temporary. I think that that's yeah. one of the things we have to recognize is how do you get kids further along playing for a longer period? Because Canadian sport, Canadian tennis, just doesn't have enough hours 
in their development phase, enough enough hours in the competitive phase to be as good as other countries. Europe has, you know, the ability to travel all the way around with their train system. I mean, you can get on a train and go anywhere at any time. No, you're sure. The, 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 the density of population and also the it's a much Correct. more popular sport. You you touched upon it earlier with budget, you know, and you talked the, the two different highways uh, in the greater Toronto area. The silver lining with budgets, um, American kids, their parents are spending way too much money traveling. There has to be a much better uh, effort, um, uh, a mindset um, to to improve that. When it comes down to um, there's a budget of time, there's a budget of money. You know, for me, ITF, and that's interesting with the UTR now, you can look at ITFs and there's, you know, a lot of times in this country, people think, well, if you're going to be a college player, you play USD tournaments. You're going to be a pro player, you play ITF. With the UTR now, you you know, you can see kids are bopping and shopping and their UTRs are nines and tens. And mm-hmm. I say that the ITF stands for idiots traveling foolishly. We do, you know, we have to do a much better job of being able to play backyard tennis. I mean, Wayne Bryant's talked about that. You know, you should be able to, you know, get on your bicycle and you just ride three or four blocks around the neighborhood and you've already, you know, um, you've already right. well, I bypassed mean, a couple of people. Is, to be, uh, yeah. I, yeah. And I agree with that. And I also think that at the end of the day, American tennis, college tennis is going to be, you know, somewhat more exclusive for American players. I think that the days are going to come where politically people aren't going to tolerate, you know, losing, losing opportunity for American players to play college tennis to foreigners. It's just not going to happen. Right. That's what I think. That's why I say Canada's better off getting into the system of developing its own collegiate scheme, its own collegiate, system that tying into American universities, right? I mean, we could do it with tennis, irrespective, but when you, when it comes down to funding and being, you know, that, that, that overall, you know, um, like American colleges are, you know, vested in, in sport, it's largely because of football programs, not largely, it is football programs, and that's what we need to recognize, and the CFL doesn't cut it, not, not, I think it's just imagination. It just doesn't. So, America, so you know, Canadian sports largely tied to, to NFL rules, I think. Actually, just, um, you know, just... I, 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 hear, I hear you, but I actually, the CFF rules, if people don't know, um, I, I'd have to be reminded, maybe they've changed the rules, but instead of having four downs, you have three. Um, you have no fair catch. <laughs> I think of Joe Theismann, um, oh, the guy from... Boston College through the Hail Mary as it should be able to just tell Doug you. Doug Flutie. Doug Flutie. I mean, Doug with, uh, yeah, no, that's interesting. Warren yeah. Moon. Yeah. But those guys, Flutie and Theisman, they ran back punts, no fair catch. But, oh, it's a wider field. I think, that, you know, the, the end zone is a little bit different, but um, it's certainly, uh, yeah, but I'm, I, I'm I'd a, get laughed yeah, at but if I'm you say, to... okay, the NFL needs to use the CFL rules. Yeah, but the truth is, is that college rules are NFL rules. In other words, universities in Canada have to play on the same playing field as universities in the States. And they've got to have the same rules, thereby you 
acts as a whole different scheme of competition. It's just, it's more demanding. Yeah, no, that's why. uh, More innovative. Like squash didn't grow because there used to be uh, two different balls. There used to be the North American dimensions and the international dimensions. And that really held back the growth of squash. Here in this country, I mean, I think it's very unfortunate. You know, a lot of people would be upset for me to hear that is pickleball has just taken off. You know, I, racquetball became official sport in 1969. It's, it, it's faded away. Uh, I think, yeah, tennis is here to stay. It would have been much better, uh, you know, with the the modern the high-tech rackets that, um, you know, senior players should have been able to go out and play, you know, with a senior racket and green dot balls, you know, mini tennis. There should have been a way to not lose tennis participation. And I think that's where we're, we're weak. I mean, the PTR and the use PTA, um, I just don't see it that way where the, they're both now selling pickleball and it's like, yeah, okay. Well, yeah, and that's the thing too. I mean, you could, yeah, you could, you could, and that's crazy. And, and, but you could innovate tennis, as you just said, use a transition ball. There isn't a, there isn't a serve. There's a drop hit to start the point. Right. And so, you know, you could, you could do, instead of, there's more balls being hit if you just drop hit and play. You know, quite often in, in people start to play and they serve and they double fault and they double fault and they you know, <laughs> play, you know, one legit point where they hit more than two balls in a game. And you can see they just walk around and pick up the ball, walk around and pick up. That doesn't help tennis. No, you're going to innovate a different thing. Your buddy and your business partner, right. I know you guys are in the court business, Carl Hale, he runs the Rogers Cup, he's president of PTR. He played college tennis with Tim Cass, who's the general manager of the USTA National Campus, which is five miles, five and a half miles from where we're sitting right now. And so Tim said to me one time, yeah, I just talked to Carl Hale about pickleball. And I said to him, I'll call him up and reprimand him. Because <laughs> we need to grow tennis. Um, you know, I think we, as a group, uh, need to get more people playing. I think that your, um, uh, your CEO before Michael Downey's uh, participation needs to increase. There's a divide happening and it's getting bigger, right? We have to find a way, the divide being those who have access to you know, programs, and services, and good coaching, and so forth, and those who just are left on the outside looking in it's becoming too expensive. In this country, tennis is becoming outrageously expensive yeah. because real estate values have gone through the roof. And to make the numbers work, from a tax standpoint, clubs are having to charge more, period. Mm. And that divide is getting bigger. And that's one of the things we have to worry about. I'll yeah. leave you with that. Well, the haves and have-nots. You know, you mentioned Dennis with cheating. Uh, Jim Lair, I spent a lot of time with Jim. And you know, he used to, uh, and it's best if you do it where the, your opponent doesn't know, but you have two kids play and I say, Hey, you know, you're going to, you're allowed to cheat five times and just let's, and just let's see how he, how he or she handles it. Um, with, uh, but when it comes down to, um, being a better player, I mean, I think that we have to do a better job as educators when it comes down to what can the family do on their own. And I, I would say to sum it up with tennis Canada, I think for the most part, you get immigrants who come in, they're learning a new way in a new country, and it's not like they have the best information, but they're just going to outwork people. And, you know, you, if some kid gets cheated, uh, they have a meltdown, you know, they're the center of the universe and, you know, self-pity and they're like, 
life is so unfair and, and, uh, but we needed to do a better job, uh, you know, teaching people, uh, just like you're mentioning, uh, the foundation, the house, the pilots, what's the, what's the reality check. And there's gotta be all sorts of checks, check this, check this, check this. And I like what you said, you know, we could go back through this and again, the listeners get something out of it. Great grips, get a grip for a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're talking to some 11 year old about changing the grip and it's like, you double your life, you triple your life, you have an inefficient grip. It's not negotiable. And then, you know, it's really bad, bad, bad when, you know, some some 12 year old and they're going, well, this is how Nadal hits it. And I just, I use one of your lines, shut up, just shut up. Is, you know, why, you know, why are, you're 12 years old and you know, you're, you're just not gonna do that in, in the Canadian pastime ice hockey. You're not gonna say, well, you know, this is what, uh, you know, Sidney Crosby does like, shut up. You know, don't tell me what Sidney Crosby does. Why don't you learn how to skate backwards or learn to cross over? And anyway, let's just end uh, with a big thank you and be brilliant with basics. Be brilliant with basics. And that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Great Base Tennis Podcast. This is Andy Fitzell. Thanks so much for listening. As I told Steve early on that I'm just going to push record and listen to you two have a conversation. So great to have Richard Hernandez on the show. And listen to really a history lesson there that spans nearly 40 years between Steve and Richard. A lot of great information, ideas, and insights shared. Please visit us on our website, greatbasetennis.com, or you can find us on social media at Great Base Tennis. We're posting daily on Facebook and also Instagram. You can also find us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Appreciate your time, and we'll see you next week. Thanks a lot.